0: went to go one way, went the other way, dashed to the train door, opened it and leapt out.
1: And welcome to For You, The War Is Over, a podcast on Second World War, prisoner of war escapes, hosted by me, Dave.
2: And me, Tony. And today we are joined by Claire Derry, who's the daughter of Sam Derry. I think we've hinted at the area that Sam worked in, and I think, really, Claire, you're probably the best person to fill all our listeners in. So, your father, what can you tell us about what your father did in the war?
0: Oh, gosh. He was a territorial soldier, officer. He loved taking part with the territorials. And then, obviously, when war was declared, he signed up and he went on the British Expeditionary Force to France at the beginning of 1940. And it was a terrible winter that year. As soon as he'd landed in France, he discovered he'd got measles. Some amusing letters home to my mother to say I'm already in hospital in France with with a severe case of measles. He then, with his regiment, he was in the artillery. He went to Belgium, travelled through Belgium and was greeted by the Belgium's great delight. But sadly, not long after arriving, things started to go terribly wrong. And he fought at the Battle of Ypres-Comme Canal and then had to do the retreat to Dunkirk like so many other people did.
2: Was he a, an officer in the artillery?
0: Yeah, he was a captain by this time in the artillery and he was much mentioned in reports of the retreat to Dunkirk. He held a line with his with his guns to allow the inventory to get back to Dunkirk and if you remember the movie that one point in it there's a ship that's beached on the beach and um, some men get in that ship hoping that when the tide comes in it might refloat. And that was him. He was on that ship. And I didn't until the film Dunkirk came out and read books that, that had been used in the movie realised that that was him. So he was very lucky. They were hit by numerous gunfire and they stayed there. And they imagined they did refloat, but actually another ship had come along and had hooked up and dragged them off the sand. Wow. Um, but they did manage to get back to so the he UK.
2: So was, he was responsible for quite a few men then at Dunkirk as part of yes, his Yes, very
0: much so. And they had to take out some Germans that were attacking them, and then they had to destroy their own guns, disarm them, and retreat but he held a line for some time there to allow other people to get back inventory that were retreating and a lot of wounded that were being taken back by Dunkirk.
2: But effectively then he did manage to escape from Dunkirk? At that yeah time?
0: he escaped from Dunkirk, came back to the UK and not long after that he was off on his travels again and he was on board ship with Cunard and he wasn't allowed to tell my mother exactly where he was going but it was his letters were somewhat coded I've got a large number of their letters to each other during this time he he would mention things like it's a place where my sister docked on her way to India and things like that so my mother got a general gist of where he was but he ended up in the Middle East and he was very involved in the Syria and Iraq campaign at that point he was promoted to major and uh, he got the military cross so how did
1: he get the military cross
0: it was at the Battle of Sidi Omar and the Allies were being overrun by the Germans and uh, it was a pretty crucial stage in the Rommel campaign and he was asked to hold a line there against far superior German forces. In fact, a panzer division of 28 tanks was attacking his small gun battery and at one point he himself took a Land Rover under fire to pick up the ammunition from one of the guns one of his guns that had been knocked out to bring it back to be able to give the ammunition to the other guns to keep them firing and it was said in reports after all that Rommel was convinced that they were being attacked by a large force and he was decorated in the field with the military cross for that action. I think it was November at the time and I remember my mother hearing about it by Christmas and it was on sort of national news as being a great reversal or a a victory in, in face of huge odds against them but it enabled a lot of Gurkha regiments, a lot of Indian regiments to retreat and saved lots of lives so I think it was something he was particularly proud of but there was also great sadness because he lost a great deal of his men at that battle and I remember him talking talking about having to bury them in the sand as they moved on and he tried to take some of his injured with him as they retreated but in the end I think decided that actually they'd be better off being captured because some of them had such terrible wounds they weren't going to make the journey. So it was on one hand a great victory in terms of holding off the Germans at that point and leading up to Tobruk.
1: So was he involved with Tobruk at all then?
0: Yeah, he was involved in fact in the fight for Tobruk was the first time he got captured. So he was captured in the desert he was captured by a German officer and they asked him for his rank and number or as they do mm. and he stayed long enough to give that and then he was a very good rugby player and he did a sort of a bit of a shimmy he'd observed as they were being rounded up that there was a large, I suppose it was sort of sand dune or crater of some sort in the sand. And he decided that if he threw himself over the edge and rolled, that they probably would give him enough time to escape. So he did that and ran then quite a long way. I can't remember exactly how far, but 20, 30 miles back to his own line, on his own. And then six months later, ironically, he was captured by the very same German officer who said to him when he saw him, I know you and you're not <laughs> getting away this time. There was a sort of mutual respect, I think, between them. And he spoke, this German spoke perfect English. So that I think there was a little bit of banter between them. And then he was taken from... Africa, where he was captured with lots of people at the fall of Trabuk and flown to Bari in Italy. And he said one of his most frightening moments of the war was being a prisoner on the plane because he was thinking, what if we get shut down by the RAF on a German plane being, you know, shipped back to Italy? But he managed to uh, survive that and then he was interned in a prisoner of war camp in Chieti in Italy for 14 months. And while he was there, he wrote lots of letters to my mother, which I've got them all, and heavily sort of redacted paragraphs, obviously. You know, they were obviously censored, these letters, and kept asking for more pairs of gym shoes. It was a camp for officers, and there were quite a lot of famous cricketers and who'd played for England before the war, and there was a lot of sport there. And Initially, my father was head of getting rations together for escapers, and they had a major escape committee and providing the food for them once they got out of the prisoner of war camp but they also knew that somebody in the camp was betraying them and most of the members of the committee uh, the escape committee were shipped off to another prisoner of war camp and my father was the only person not identified as one of the escape committee so he ended up taking over the running of the escape committee in that prisoner of war camp.
2: That's incredible. I mean we've covered a number of other prisoners who have been in Italian camps and it seems to be that there was a great variation in conditions. There are some camps that are absolutely appalling and there are some we've seen some people kept just in fours or fives in monasteries and things like that. I mean 14 months is a long time in that camp. How did you speak of treatment and life in the camp and I guess generally morale in the camp that time?
0: I didn't talk to him very much about that, but I have read his letters, and in his letters, they're very much his son had died and he'd only just found out about it and his whole I suppose raison d'etre was keeping my mother's spirits up so his letters were all about activities and that he was fine and he was coping but subsequently I know now that the conditions were so appalling in that prisoner of war camp that often there wasn't any running water it was a camp only for officers so it had senior officers in there and actually questioned were asked in the Houses of Parliament about the state of that prisoner of war camp and representation was made to the German government. So I didn't know that at the time and it's not something he really talked about. He was covered in desert sores. He'd been in the desert for quite a long time by then. so I I don't think he was in a great state and I think he gradually recuperated and I think sport was the main thing they did. He played a lot of bridge as well, I gather. He, He said that he played a lot of bridge.
1: So it was at Katie that his escape career, if you like, really kicked off.
0: Yes, he was called in by the senior officer in the camp and asked to run the escape organisation and his view was he had to have five tunnels on the go at all times and he had parties that were doing digging the tunnels. Now the stay put order had gone out which was an order that after the First World War a lot of mayhem had been caused when people had left prisoner of war camps and Mussolini had collapsed and there was a feeling that the same might happen Happen again, and a belief that the Allies had already landed in Italy and that it wouldn't be long before they came up Italy and that they would be relieved. But sadly, that wasn't the case. It took much longer than they thought. And unfortunately, the commanding officer at Kieti really believed that they should stick by the stay put order. But unfortunately, the Germans knew that this was a camp full of British officers, or not just British, Allied officers, and they sent a crack German SS group who were just back from fairly battle weary, but they sent them up to Chieti because it was quite close to where Mussolini was hiding as well. So when the Germans arrived, they were there, but the Italians had mainly fled and had taken all records. So my father hid 50 men in the various tunnels so that the Germans didn't know how many were on the roll call. He didn't himself go in those tunnels. He really felt the guys that had dug them must be the ones that were hidden in there. And then the rest of them were moved out to Somona and were told in no uncertain terms that they were going to be shipped to Germany for the rest of the war.
1: So had he made any attempt to escape himself while he was in Kyate, or, or Solmona for that matter?
0: I don't know whether he had in Kyate. I think his focus really was on getting as many people out as possible, and probably not himself. I mean, he was a big Guy he was six foot three, and so probably getting him through a tunnel would be a little bit more difficult than perhaps some of the smaller guys. I don't know. Well,
2: particularly if, as you say, he played a lot of rugby, then a rugby statue. We've come across a couple of people who were larger than life, should we say, who who tried to squeeze themselves through train windows and things like that. You know, the resolve of many of these people was strong to, to get away, but it is, it's, it's great to hear that he was trying to get others away and not necessarily himself.
0: Now, I mean, he did tell me that he very much felt that the guys. Who'd done all the, you know, the hard work of digging those tunnels should be the ones that were hidden in them. And I, I, it was 50 or just slightly more than 50 that managed to escape, while the others were shipped onto Salmona. He did try and escape from Salmona. Quite a funny story, really. He'd watched what was going on, and he'd noticed that a garbage truck came in on a regular basis to take garbage in and out of the camp. And so uh, he took the opportunity to climb up onto the top of the rubbish cart and was gaily heading out through the gate when one of the senior officers suddenly looked up and saw him on the top of this garbage truck and said, Derry, what the hell are you doing up there? (laughs) My father sheepishly climbed (laughs) down, couldn't believe that he'd been sort of... uh, you know, not betrayed in you know, a, it was just a subconscious nearly reaction from this guy of shouting out, what are you doing? But he sheepishly climbed down. But he he was absolutely determined that he was not going to Germany under any circumstances whatsoever. And when they went to the train station and they were being put on the train, one of his mates, a guy called Jock Short, a Scottish guy, he and dad had been talking and he said, I'm not going to Germany either. And he made a run for it at the railway station at Sormona. And the Germans shot him dead. And very sadly, uh, that was the end of him. But my father said once he got on the train, he could think of nothing else. The noise of the train wheels was like a repetition of I've got to get off, I've got to get off, I've got to get off. So he hadn't really got a plan and he decided he'd go and sort of wrecky things out. For his favourite phrase in life was time spent in reconnaissance is seldom wasted. So he asked if he could go to the loo And he went into the toilet area on the train and the guards stood outside and he looked at the window. That was all boarded up. So there was going to be no opportunity of climbing out the window. And then as he came out of the toilet and he just did one of his famous rugby dummies, went to go one way, went the other way, dashed to the train door, opened it and leapt out. Now the train was going pretty fast, it was broad daylight, it was in a valley, it was everything wrong and everything you shouldn't do. And he just rolled and rolled and rolled away from the train expecting to be shot at any minute or expecting the train to stop and none of those things happened eventually he sort of came to and just lay there for a while pretty bruised and battered but he had survived and the train had gone on and he'd no idea where he was or what what next to do but he sort of limped his way through the countryside and eventually saw a farmhouse and he observed that farmhouse for many hours before deciding that he'd have to go and ask for some help.
2: I'm just flabbergasted really I mean we've all seen I suppose the closest thing you can think about is is the job jump on the train from the great escape where they try and go unnoticed but to literally dive out of the door not knowing where you are because I mean he won't have been prepared he won't have documents he probably is relatively undernourished from having been in the conditions within the Italian camp so if your batteries were already running on empty and you're now about to set off not knowing where you are what direction to head I mean that's it's a bold move it's well, a really bold move.
0: You could say slightly crazy. And he he had a... he They created a little mini radio from parts, from Red Cross parcels and things that he'd had. And all his provisions, he'd left everything behind because you could hardly have taken anything with you when you asked to go to the bathroom. So he hadn't really thought it out, but I think... It was just that complete spur of the moment, I'm not going to Germany, I'm not going to risk that, I'm getting off this train. And so, yeah, it was spontaneous.
1: Yes, we've certainly seen in other escapes that we've looked at, whereby that urge to escape, that urge for freedom, has just become so overwhelming that the spontaneity, the -the in-the-moment decision just overcomes them, they just go for it, and it, it, it... absolutely can work and undoubtedly did in your father's case. So, he's found himself at a farmhouse. This is not long after the armistice. What happened from there? How did he get from wherever he was? Because he didn't know where he was. No,
0: he didn't know where he was. So in the end, he went and knocked on the farmhouse door and an elderly man came out and his wife and they were absolutely horrified. Now, of course, Churchill had sent out an order saying that anybody who helped British prisoners of war would be rewarded when the war was over. But the Germans had sent out and dropped flyers telling the Italians that any Italians that helped... British prisoners of war would be shot. My father was aware of that and he was very concerned but equally he was in a terrible state. He was fairly badly hurt from the fall and he was very very malnourished. And he didn't, I think he'd reached the point that if they turned him in, they turned him in. He needed some help. Anyway, he doesn't speak any Italian. They didn't speak any English. But by various sign languages and whatever, he was able to convey that he was friendly and that he was hungry. So they, they went and they got some bread and they gave him some bread and cheese. And then they wanted to invite him into the house. And he said, you know, he said, no, he would not go in the house because Well, I think two reasons. One, he felt it would compromise them hugely. And secondly, he felt, I think, that if he was outside somewhere, then his chance of escape, if they did betray him, would be much greater. So he saw a haystack and he asked if he could get into the haystack or climb onto the haystack. And they agreed. And so he buried himself in the haystack. And I think probably had the best night's sleep he'd had in a very long time in the morning, they brought him some more food, and I think for the first couple of days he was just completely exhausted and Then he woke up one morning and he could see on the horizon the unmistakable dome of St Peter's Rome and so he realized where he was, and his plan was to make his way back to where he imagined the British line would be because he'd known when they'd landed in Sicily they'd picked that up at the prison camp but what they hadn't realised how slow their progress was and as he was thinking about this some young boys who spoke a bit of English came and told him that they wanted to take him to meet some other English prisoners of war and they guided him up into the hills near where he was and he found a small group of prisoners of war they were very shabbily dressed they'd been captured most of them in Africa and the Middle East therefore they were in very thin military uniform desert uniform by now we're talking September time so he was thinking gosh these guys are not going to survive if we have a severe winter and he found that unlike his prisoner of war camp where the stay put order had been enforced most other prisoners of war camp Where there hadn't been any officers, they'd just walked out. The Italians had had just deserted the camps and they'd all fled. So he he thought about what he should do. He was the only officer and he felt very strongly that he couldn't just abandon them. So he came back to his bode in the haystack and thought about it and thought, well, clearly I've got to help them. And um, the next day he went back and the numbers had doubled and suddenly it wasn't just 10 or 12, it was 50 prisoners of war. And then he had a thought, well I'm near to Rome, the Vatican is in Rome, the Vatican is neutral, I wonder if there is any members of the British government in the Vatican and whether there's any chance I can get a message to them and see if there's any money available to help us because we need food, we need warm clothing, and we need supplies. So he thought it was risky but he asked the boys if they could bring the local priest because he was well aware that the priests were coming around the prison camps and that they acted as intermediaries. And a priest came, local priest came, and he asked him if he could get a message into the Vatican. And he nodded and said yes and asked my father to write it. And he wrote a short message saying, I'm Major Sam Derry of the Royal Artillery, myself and 50 prisoners of war are hiding outside Rome. We desperately need some money to be able to buy food and clothing. And off the priest went and he thought, well, I don't know what will come of this, but I can't think of anything else that I can do. A few days later, the priest returned and he had 3,000 lira. My father was very impressed by this and he went up to greet the men in the hills and by now the numbers had grown again and he asked them to ask... Italian helpers to get warm clothing and food supplies but he realized that 3,000 lira was not going to be enough for what they needed and he thought well, this is a bit cheeky but he asked the priest whether he could send another message saying thank you for the 3,000 lira but actually we need more now because there's even more of us and the priest went and he came back And he said to my father, yes, you can have more money, but only if you go and collect it yourself. And my father thought, ah, well, this is, is bound to be a trap. And the priest said, oh, no, 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 it's fine, but we need you to come into Rome. So he set off the following morning and he was put in a cabbage cart. And for most of the journey, he sat on top of the cabbages going to the local market in Rome. And then as they were getting close to the checkpoints, the farmer buried him under the cabbages. Pretty unpleasant, he said, very smelly. And they, he heard them arrive at a checkpoint and he heard them saying, talking to the Germans and he was sort of expecting any minute for a bayonet or something to have prodded the cabbages but nothing happened and they carried on their way and they went into the centre of Rome and as I say you know he's a big man he's six foot three and so he's not easy to hide and he was then escorted to an apartment I mean he was really shabbily dressed he was still in the same military desert a uniform that he'd been in for the more or less the last 14 months and they put him in a very ill-fitting suit which was miles too small for him and then he went on a walk through Rome until he came really to the more or less the steps of St Peter's and as they entered St Peter's Square he saw a very distinguished-looking priest on the other side of the square. And my father realised that the robes he was wearing were those of, of quite a senior member of the Catholic Church, actually a Monseigneur. He came alongside the Monseigneur and he said in a broad Irish accent, just follow me, my boy. And so my father followed him and he took him towards a building right next door to St Peter's. And as my father looked at the door he saw the sign Teutonica College and he thought German, German, must be German, German college. And he thought, oh, this is definitely going to be a trap. And they went in and the priest was known by everybody. Everybody spoke to him and he took him up to his room. My father was still quite anxious and the monsignor said, I expect you'd love a cup of tea. And and when did you last have a bath? And my father, it it was a very long time since he'd had a bath. And the, the priest gave him some underwear and said go and have a bath and relax and he couldn't quite believe it. He didn't really know what was happening and he was in this tiny room which was the Monseigneur's room in a German college. The college actually was a college for training people to the priesthood for German priests but the staff were all German and my father was you know quite concerned as to how he was going to go unnoticed. Funnily enough the Monseigneur and my father were both six foot three and of a very similar build. Uh, The Monseigneur uh, then when he went back to his room said to my father I've got somebody I want you to meet and um, an Englishman came in broad cockney and my father was thinking gosh this is all very very strange stuff and he asked him who he was he asked my father quite a few questions and checking him out and this man said I'm the butler to the minister for the holy See, and the minister would like to invite you to dinner tonight. And my father was, he'd gone from this world of huge deprivation in a prisoner of war camp to suddenly being invited to dinner with a British minister in the Holy See, in the Vatican itself. And my father said, well, how am I going to get there? And they pondered this for a minute. And then the Monseigneur observed that my father and he were a very similar height and he said, well, tonight, two monsignors will go to the British ministry. And that's what they did. So he dressed my father up in his second habit. And he told him to look like he was praying as they crossed the square together and entered into the Vatican itself. Of course, the Vatican was neutral and any officers entering it or anybody who went there could be interred for the rest of the war. My father definitely didn't want that to happen. But as he was disguised as a priest, that was fine. And then he ended up having the most opulent dinner with the British minister Sir Darcy Osborne and Sir Darcy also was quite a tall man, and he lent my father some more clothes, and then they had a long discussion, and he explained to my father that. And I'm 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 doing this from memory, but I think seventy-five thousand Allied prisoners of war had escaped from camps all over Italy. So my father was just seeing a small portion of the problem in the little area he was in. But the British government were increasingly aware that there were going to be thousands of prisoners of war all over Italy. And the Monseigneur, my father said the bravest man, the kindest man he ever met in his life, he was risking a great deal by helping these prisoners of war in hiding them all over Rome. He was also hiding a lot of Jews. And although he was Irish and, and no real friend to the British because of what had gone on before being an Irish Catholic, he'd firmly decided that the Germans were evil and that he would do anything to help protect people's lives. But It was at a huge risk, not only to himself, but also by implication to the Pope and the whole neutrality of the Vatican, which needed to be preserved. So Sir Darcy Osborne had been looking for somebody to take over the running of this organisation. And when my father sent his note in to Rome, he thought this could be our ideal candidate to run the Rome organisation.
2: How old was your father at the time? Well, he was
0: born in 1940. so he was 29. 29 Mm -hmm. years old
2: to be given that responsibility...
0: Yeah, it, it was a huge responsibility. But before they could actually be certain he was the right man, they needed to check that he wasn't a German plant and a, he was who he said he was. So after this amazing meal, Sadasi said to my father, now, Sam, what would you do next? And he said, well, I must go back to the men that I've left behind in the hills outside Rome. I need to get take the money back that I said I would get from for them and I've promised them. And I want to thank also the Italian family that have hidden me. I'm very, very poor, and they've given me everything they possibly could. And so he was given quite a lot of money. I, I can't be absolutely certain, but I, it's in his book. But I think it was about 30,000 lira to go back with. So he did the return journey in the cabbage cart. And he told a funny story, actually, that when they were returning, it was the custom of the vegetable cabbage grower to stop off at a local the for a few glasses of wine or a few glasses of booze of some sort on his way home. And my father wanted to pay for the drink, but he would got this wad of 30,000 <laughs> lira in his pocket and the eyes of the guy driving the cabbage cart were out on stalks as he saw him sort of pulling off these notes to give him. Anyway, he was given a, the biggest reward of his life, I think, for transporting him into Rome and told that he'd need to do the same journey for the third time uh, within a few days um, and then my father made one of the group in the hills outside in charge of the group of men that he'd left behind. He also rewarded the elderly farmer and his wife who had hidden him. In the meantime, huge activity was going on at MI9 in London, as my father was being checked out, and the local police in his hometown of Newark were contacted and said, We need to find out as much as we can about a Sam Derry and we need to find stuff that only he could possibly answer. So they visited my grandfather and asked him loads and loads of questions. So by the time my father had returned to Rome in the cabbage cart, had dressed up as a Monseigneur again, had gone gone back into the Vatican, Sir Darcy Osborne had all of these questions. And my father always joked that it was quite funny being interrogated by your own side, because he realised straight away why he was being asked all these strange questions about Newark and about the church and the castle and who died there and that sort of thing, which you really wouldn't know unless you you were local. But anyway, Sir Darcy Osborne was satisfied. So in October, 1940 my father took over as an MI9 operative in enemy territory and head of the Rome organisation.
1: So, you've talked about the Monsignor that has helped smuggle him into the Vatican. And for those of us who are gripped by the world of prisoner of war escapes, this Monsignor in particular is a bit of a legend. Do you want to fill in a bit more detail on, on Monsignor Huo Flattery?
0: Yes. I mean, the Monsignor Huo Flattery was an extraordinary man. He had risen up the ranks of the priesthood, went to Rome. He was so appalled when he realised what the Germans were doing particularly the, the terrible situation with the Jews. He was personally responsible for organizing a network of priests to hide. Jewish people in churches, even in the papal buildings. And he also travelled around prisoner of war camps throughout Italy, delivering Red Cross parcels, taking in books for the prisoners to read. He came out with lists of names and he gave those names to the embassies that were in the Holy See so they could broadcast messages over the radio back to their countries to alert people that that they were prisoners in prisoner of war camps. His work actually got to the point where the Germans spoke to the papacy to say, we're not happy about this. This guy is doing far too much. I mean, that was when he was visiting prisoner of war camps and he still carried on And in the early days, it was very much him, Count Salazar, and uh, Sir Darcy Osborne, who were getting funds together to help look after these prisoners of war. He never thought of his own personal safety. In fact, as my father got to know him, he became increasingly alarmed at the Monseigneur's lack of care, really, for himself and the fact that he trusted everybody and believed in everybody. I mean, he was a deeply religious man. He never tried to convert my father to Catholicism, but they had some interesting evening chats. And, you know, at one point, my father asked him about, you know, supporting the British. And he said, oh, you know, I remember the black and tans and, you know, I'm no fan of the British, but I know the difference between right and wrong and I know what the Germans are doing is wrong. So he was guided by deep faith and belief. And without him, the Rome organization really, I don't think would have ever have happened or it would never have happened on the scale that it did happen. And after my father had returned to Rome, he stayed living in that tiny little room in a little bed in one corner with the Monseigneur. And so, you know, the bravery of that. We're in a German college with German staff and he's hiding a British officer. The Monseigneur and my father lived in that same little room together. And many a night would sit and chat. They both had a love of golf. In fact, my father gave everybody code names and the Monseigneur's code name was golf. My father was Patrick because this was his new persona as Patrick Derry journalist. But an extraordinary bond grew between the two men and my father had enormous respect for the Monseigneur.
2: So, this is an incredible story for something we haven't had before. I mean, so you've got a father who's an army officer, has been at Dunkirk, has fought in Africa, has been captured in Africa, has been imprisoned in Italy, has escaped in Italy, and is now within Rome as an MI9 operative, helping and assisting others. You mentioned he stayed with the Monsignor. So, how did he then engage with prisoners of war coming through? Did he keep on leaving the city to go back into the hills to meet with others, or... Did they wait for people to come and present themselves to the Vatican?
0: There was more or less a never-ending stream of prisoners and most of them were making their way to Rome. Some because of their awareness of the neutrality of the Vatican, others I think it seemed a natural point to gravitate towards. I mean the Allies were coming up through Italy but they were stuck at a pretty hard line and there were organisations I guess or groups of prisoners all over the place. My father actually recognised that hiding them within Rome itself was very hard and in many cases he preferred them like his group to stay on the outskirts in farmland less visible in many ways to the Germans. But it was never-ending, and we're talking about thousands of prisoners of war. So what he needed to do was find accommodation, and some very brave Italians were prepared to take people in. There was a very brave Maltese lady called Henrietta Chevalier who was keen to hide British prisoners of war, and there were many, many groups of people that were hiding them and money was coming into Rome from the British government in the end millions of pounds to be able to pay for the accommodation and they were renting apartments so initially a big conduit in all of this was the local priests because they were in towns all over Italy and they were coming in and feeding the stories to the Monseigneur and so my father was there and then he increasingly just took over all of the organisation. that from the Monsignor and he was very much a detail person so every pound every lira that arrived he was writing down you know how much he'd spent where it had been spent all of that type of thing but one of the big handicaps was there was my father didn't speak Italian so traveling around Italy visiting these apartments was really dangerous And on one occasion, a German officer or a German soldier came and sat next to him and wanted to practice his Italian on my father. And my father, you know, had to tend to be asleep, pretend to be annoyed at this German interrupting his his sleep. Because he he, he just was not good at languages at all, which was a big handicap. And then one particular day, he got a message that a a group of prisoners who had arrived from the same prisoner of war camp that he'd been in Kiati. And one of them got smuggled in the same way my father had in a way to the German college and it was a close associate of my father's from Kiati who'd been wow. with him, who was in the artillery and um, somebody called John Furman who was a Jew, but he spoke Italian. And my father thought, right, this is fantastic. I've now got Italian speaker (laughs) an Italian speaking guy who can help me and also with him in this little group that had come into Rome having escaped from Salmona like my father was another guy called Bill Simpson and my father knew and trusted him but they came with a guy called Joe Pollock. And my father had felt in Chiate that he was the betrayer who had given away who was on the escape committee. He thought that because Joe was multilingual and he often saw him speaking to the Italian guards. And I don't know, my father just had that suspicion. So when John and Joe arrived together and were taken to the Monseigneur's room, my father was really worried that it might be a betrayal. But having put Joe in a separate room and having talked to John, uh, John said, absolutely not. This guy can be totally relied on. He's been us all the way. He escaped from Salmona and so that was good news. And so suddenly he had three guys to do a lot of the running around for him, taking prisoners of war to different apartments, taking food, taking clothing and doing a lot of that running around while he masterminded the plan to either get some of them back to our forces so he eventually connected with MI9 some were taken to the east coast of Italy to try and escape but I have to say the majority of them were fed and housed and kept safe in and around Rome until Rome was relieved in June forty
2: four. Oh, now that is Interesting. Because, I mean, we covered the escape of Nightingale, Cook, and Macaulay in episode four of series three. But there were a couple of months before your father arrived in Rome. But we saw with them; they were in a hospital near the Colosseum, and then they walked to the Vatican. And there, their report tends to end. It says, you know, they were looked after. They met the Monsignor, and the next thing we see is that they are then returned to the UK via Lisbon. But we didn't really have any details on any of that. So in a lot of cases, the these men stayed housed within Rome but some were returned how many men did your father and his team help through this Rome escape line
0: by the time the Allies arrived in Rome my father had nearly 5,000 prisoners of war on his book some had made it back but the vast majority hadn't remarkably not many had been captured and killed I mean some had sadly But the vast majority, many nationalities, you know, obviously not just British, but French, American, Greek, many different nationalities were part of the people who were there. So in effect, a complete army really was there and was well looked after and reasonably well fed. I mean, at one time, the Germans were furious to read stories that within German-occupied Rome British officers were eating at the best restaurants and going to the opera at, uh, right under the very noses of the Germans. So there was a few occasions when a few of our Allied prisoners got had a bit too much to drink and my father was very strict on discipline and I was amused by some of the notes he wrote telling them of their unacceptable behaviour sort of good childhood memories for me and my brothers of when our behaviour was unacceptable. And he certainly had to sort of keep law and order and keep discipline, really to protect the Italians that were hiding them. But they did they did get braver and braver as time went on. But then there were also some, some terrible moments. My father had an Italian who operated a radio for him, getting messages backwards and forwards, And he radioed a few too many times from the same place and he was captured and sent to the famous, notorious, I should say, prison in Rome, the Regeni Coli. And a lot of people who, if they were arrested, were put there and the fascist headquarters very close to there, a lot of them were tortured either by the fascist Italian leader in Rome or by the SS. But there were lots of stories. I mean, one guy got an appendicitis and really was acute. He he had to have an operation or he wouldn't have lived and we had to find a way of smuggling him into a hospital to be operated on by an Italian doctor and then smuggled out more or less immediately after his operation and I think the Monseigneur managed to organise that with the daughter of the Irish ambassador using his car to ferry this prisoner of war in and out of the hospital. (laughs) There was another incident when, I think it was the Lucides, who had housed both John Furman and Bill Simpson, and they decided one night to go to the opera, and they were sat in a box, and I think Renzo's wife was quite a beautiful actress, Adriana, and the German Commandant General was in the next box, and he, one of his very senior officers had taken rather a liking to this beautiful Italian lady, and she asked him if he would like to, would sign her programme for her, and so he did, and he then asked if perhaps she could ask the Commandant General if he would sign the programme. He he said, of course, and so he got it. this sign. Said, they left then with two very significant signatures from <laughs> from their time sitting next to the... know the sort of head of the whole of the operation in Rome.
2: So I mean that's fascinating because we've seen through all of the skates we've covered that the ability to produce accurate papers that would have the relevant stamps and signatures upon them was one of the biggest challenges so in that aspect that they managed to collect those signatures as part of that network in Rome were they producing their own forged documents or were these things that were being provided from the UK into the Vatican?
0: The whole operation of identity cards was a, a machine, and it was very quick. Has to have been done in Italy itself. And the man responsible for organising it all was John May, the butler. Um, my father said his identity card came in a matter of days. I still have it, actually, interestingly. One of the bits of memorabilia that he kept... And they never actually used those signatures that they got at the Opera House, funnily enough, because I think they were too senior. I think, you know, that would have been questioned as to why, you know, this was somebody of such importance. But the whole of that organisation was very, very slick. John May knew his way around the black market. He could get just about any item that you wanted. And the fact that the British government were getting money in and paying for it in lira enabled John May, I think, to work his magic. And the common, normal Italian people were keen to help. I mean, they'd been on our side in the First World War. Many of them disapproved of Mussolini. And there were also two very significant Italian families, Count Salazar and the Pamphili family. They provided quite a lot of money as well as what was coming through from the British government. So I don't think MI9 was sending any documents or that sort of information, but they were helping. My father was very keen to get a message to my mother to let her know that he was still alive because he'd been missing for a long time
2: The police had visited your grandfather to answer questions. So had that information not been passed on to your mother?
0: Yes. The local police chief constable came and visited my grandfather to ask for information. But he would not reveal at all why. So it's a big question mark. Why are they asking all of these questions? And then not many weeks after that, a tiny, tiny photograph arrived in the post to my mother in her maiden name, delivered to her home, not my grandfather's home. And on the back, in tiny writing, was Happy Birthday, Darling. And it was a photograph of my father with a priest standing outside St Peter's. So then she knew he was in Rome, and she knew he was in civilian clothes, he wasn't in a military uniform, and he was with a priest. So it left more questions (laughs) unanswered than answered, I guess. But
2: that's brilliant. What a story.
0: And John May, actually, I think, had organised that. He had sent a letter to his own mother asking her to post that photograph to my mother. So it was a sort of convoluted route, but it enabled her to know that he was alive and looking a lot better than she expected him to be looking.
1: That's fantastic. And such a lovely story as well. We've seen in the stories of other escape lines whereby there's been sadly betrayals and people being arrested and helpers being arrested in particular and even in some cases ending up in concentration camps or sadly being shot. Was there anything like that on the Rome escape line?
0: Oh, yes. I mean, it was a constant battle to know who could be trusted and who couldn't be trusted. On that very first trip into Rome, when my father had gone in the cabbage cart, he'd been taken to an apartment and introduced to an Italian called Pascal Paffidi. And he had been the person who had walked through Rome with my father and then walked alongside the Monseigneur and then had left them. And he was one of the first people to betray them. Often one has to say this happened when they had been captured, they'd been tortured. And then I think for fear of what would happen to them and their families, they then gave up information. So there were constant raids on the safe houses Each safe house, or or a lot of them, had coded doorbell, but even those were given away at times. So people were constantly having to be moved from safe house to safe house. And I know my father was very worried about uh, Mrs Chevalier, and somebody in her apartment block betrayed her. But I think she gave as good as she got. She then said wasn't her, but it was the person who'd betrayed her, which sent all sorts of confusion. Most of the senior members of the escape organisation, at some point or other, spent some time in the Regeni Coley prison.
1: Including your father?
0: No, he never got caught. But towards the end, when they knew the Allies were getting close, it was decided that the Germans definitely knew of his existence and they were really looking for him. And at that point, he was moved into the Vatican, but not listed as interned. So he was the only person who sort of disappeared from existence, as it were, and he became a bit of a shady figure that could only go out at night time and had to be really careful what he did. As the Allies advanced, he picked up a radio message and was able to tell the Allies which bridges had been mined and what the german movements of evacuating and leaving the city were which was pretty useful for the allies as they arrived to relieve rome in june of 44
2: now this is unusual for us as a podcast because we're normally covering an escape and of course your father did escape and we then see that when they return to the uk what happens from there now as you've mentioned the allies get to rome in 1944 i've got a big feeling that it's not over for your father yet. So what occurred after the liberation by the Allies?
0: Well, there was a huge celebration inevitably as the Allies arrived and then there was the real question of what's going to happen next and the sheer scale of this number of prisoners but also of all of the Italians that had helped and the promise that they would be recompensed. So my father was offered to return home, which he politely declined. For a very short period, he became military Italian to Rome, working with Sir Darcy Osborne, arranging for the repatriation of all of the Allied prisoners of war. And when General Alexander arrived in Rome, my father was very concerned about recompense to all the Italian families, Mrs. Chevalier, the Monseigneur, all the people who had been so significant in helping. And the general asked him to take command initially of the Allied Screening Commission, which was an organisation which she set up with the help of both... Bill Simpson and John Furman to process the claims of the Italian families and they set to to do that and within quite a short space of time 65,000 Italians had received certificates known as the Alexander Certificate to acknowledge their contribution and also had received financial payments. Unfortunately, my father had hoped that some would also receive medals of bravery, but because the Italians had started the war on the German side, that was not considered correct. But certainly the Monseigneur got the CBE, Mrs Chevalier, who was Maltese, received awards. And then, still, my father decided not to come home. don't think this pleased my mother very much. And he stayed on and joined General Alexander's staff and was then involved with the whole situation with... Well, as part of the organisation, the Rome organisation, had come across some very significant Greek members of the Greek resistance and two of those went on to be in the Greek government and so he traveled to Greece and he was actually in Greece after the Yalta meeting and he met Churchill and Eden in Greece with the Greek government
2: was he still considered to be an MI9 operative at this moment or had that ended at the arrival no, of No I
0: think he went th- With a major general, Major General Taffy Rod, and himself, travelled to Greece, there was quite a lot of disquiet about what happened in Greece. And it was felt that somebody like my father, who had close connections with people in the Greek government, might be useful. And he then stayed on after that for the very latter part of the war. So, yes, he must have been still part of MI9 because he was responsible for interviewing, prisoners of war and he then went to Yugoslavia and eventually then came home and took over MI9 from Brigadier Norman Crockett.
2: I mean I was going to say this is astounding as far as stories go we've covered many stories that you could say well this could be a film or this is a book and everything else Well, it is a book, isn't it? Because he wrote a book of his time.
0: Yes, he wrote The Rome Escape Line in 1960. I'm not sure why it was required. He'd still stayed very involved in military intelligence after the war. And for some reason, the British government wanted this story to be told. And they wanted it to be told from the British point of view, possibly because they'd spent so much money. And it was was a real story. I think over two million pounds eventually had been spent by the British government, which in or 1940s was a lot of money. So he was asked to write the book. Also, the BBC had picked up on the story and they did a This Is Your Life programme. And it was wonderful because in the audience were 250 men who had been saved, as it might be, by the Rome organisation, a lot of which poured onto the stage at the end, a lot of which said they'd never met my father, but they knew he'd been responsible for the organisation. And the final moment in the show, the Monseigneur, who was very ill at the time and had said that he couldn't possibly come over, had made a decision that he should. And so that last moment of somebody appearing was Monsieur Huoflati, which was tremendous, really. I was a little girl at the time, but we all remembered the warmth, the smile, the godliness of the man, really. My father met three popes during his lifetime. Pope Pius XII, who was the Pope during, the, during war, the war, he asked my father when Rome was relieved, and how long have you been here, Major Derry? And my father didn't know what to do because he didn't want to lie to a Pope, and yet he didn't dare admit that he'd been there for quite some considerable time. But luckily somebody interceded. He then came back for the first time in, on holiday in the 70s, and his actual identity card had been signed by a cardinal. And I think the name was Cardinal Vincenti, who then had become Pope in the 70s. So on holiday, he showed this identity card, Patrick Derry, to a Swiss guard. And the Swiss guard was very flummoxed by this card. And he took it in. They asked which hotel my father was staying in, he said. And then a message came and he was invited for an audience with the Pope on his own on that occasion. And then I went back with him with my mother for 40 years since the liberation of Rome. And we were introduced to John Paul II, and there was an aura about meeting him that was reminiscent of Monsieur O'Flaherty for me in in some strange way.
2: So, you, I mean, you say you went back for the fortieth. So, did you and your father retrace any of his steps and revisit places from his time in? in yes,
0: the war? we did. It was an amazing experience. American film crew came over and filmed it. We even had a letter from President Ronald Reagan because the American were unveiling a statue to the special services who had been the people who had got to Rome first but had taken huge casualties. And we had a reunion and 12 members of the Rome escape line came back for that reunion. Bill Simpson, John Furman, Garrett Cole, Bernie Brine, the Canadian who had been in the Vatican, who had made all of the notes. And we also met up with the Lucides that Renzo Lucidi and and the Italians and we went to bars went to a bar in Rome where they'd carved their names during the war in the wood of the bar so it was quite an extraordinary experience and we went to the Ardentine Caves we saw the tomb of my father's radio operator who had been unfortunately in the Cole prison when they'd just taken all the prisoners out and they'd taken eight Italians for every German that had been killed in an ambush by the communists, the resistance, and they'd blown them up in the caves. And we went to the British cemetery and we saw the grave of another sad story. I mean, there's so many of them, but of a, a British submarine officer who had terrible night traumas after he'd escaped and come to Rome. And he dreamt one night that he'd got to get out of the submarine and he jumped out of the window of one of the apartment blocks he was hiding in. And he's buried in the British Cemetery in Rome. So it was a celebration. We were hosted by the British Embassy, the Irish Embassy, the American Embassy. The Italian president came to the plaque revealing. So, yeah, it was a great moment and I was very lucky to be part of it and be there to witness these great men and great things they did. You know, I always think of them, that saying, the greatest generation. And there was a lot to admire in terms of lack of selfishness and a keenness to do the right thing.
1: Tony said earlier that this could be a Hollywood movie but in fact there is a Hollywood movie but there is some controversy around the movie
0: Yes, after my father had written his book in 1960 Shepperton Studios acquired the film rights to the book and we very much thought a film would be made and there was much talk and there was contracts and all of that was done Then in the 80s, nothing had happened with that and I was working in media and I tried again to get... Get something off the ground and we wrote a television mini-series actually rather than a film we thought might be a better option because there's just so many stories about what happened in Rome. But I don't know whether it was pure coincidence. The basic concept was picked up by an American film company and they made a film called The Scarlet and the Black with Gregory Peck starring as Monsieur Flati And my father was still alive at the time and he... He was disappointed that the whole British element was taken out of the film. It was brilliant in that it portrayed the Monsignor and told some of the amazing stories of how he escaped capture by dressing up as a Coleman on one instance. But it, it wasn't true to what really happened in many respects.
2: But what we know that is true to events that happened is the book. And obviously, we mentioned that your father wrote a book. So this would have been some time ago. Is that book available now or is it going to be available for people who are listening who want to learn more?
0: Yes. The original book was 1960. It was published here and in America. It's been heavily pirated. So I decided that I would republish it. Damien Lewis, who is somebody who's been researching my father, has written a great forward to the book and I've written an epilogue and it will be republished this summer and available on Amazon and hopefully in bookshops as well
2: under the title of
0: The Rome Escape Line by Sam Derry so it's his actual account Damien joked with me that he couldn't imagine how anybody could write a story about jumping off a train and say it with such matter of fact way of describing it so it's very very much how my father told the story but in that there's an authenticity i think that is important and that's what i wanted to preserve you know, having started life in a very sort of ordinary way as a, a local heating engineer. And he he went on to have quite an extraordinary life. And when he did die in 96, he was given a full military funeral with the Union Jack on his coffin. And he had in later life, uh, not only run numerous charities, been pre- president of St. John's Ambulance, but done masses of work. I think quite a lot of covert stuff still carried on for many years after the war he was head of military intelligence and he was very involved with winston churchill in the formation of the territorial sas 23 sas and at their headquarters in birmingham there's a board which lists first commanding officers and his name is at the top of that board which was something he told me but i had no way of verifying until i saw that photograph so it was an extraordinary life it's
2: an incredible life and a life that saved many thousands of other lives as well.
0: Yes uh, many thousands of lives in both at Dunkirk and then in the Middle East and then obviously the Rome escape line and after that when he came back to the UK he was given a Lancaster bomber plane and he flew all over Europe handing out awards on behalf of the King to people like Day Day and many more who had been responsible for running the escape lines and helping our people escape back and I suspect from talking to him that he thought we would be at war with Russia before too long in the 50s, and I think what he was probably doing was keeping all of those agents warm in case we ever needed them again. I think that's something he thought would happen, and that we needed to be aware of how important doing the right thing and helping and supporting people in times of crisis is the need for that humanity
2: which he had in droves by the sound of it yeah
0: yeah i think he did
2: i can't add to that any further other than saying thank you for that and we've got to say to anybody who's listening if you are interested in learning more and the full story then the rome escape
1: line coming out this summer and then the only other thing left to say is to say thank you very much to you claire for joining us that's been absolutely brilliant
0: it's been a pleasure thank you
1: well
2: thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed that if you'd like to subscribe we're on Apple iTunes Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms
1: or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O
2: or if you want to send us a more long form message you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at (laughs) gmail.com